Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to gather with your people, sing your praises. Thank you that we're reminded of your love. And now, Lord, as we turn to a um, confronting text, we plead with you, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive it. Jesus, we want to see you. We need to see you. And we don't ever want to be the same. So I do pray, oh God, less of me, more of you. Be exalted, Jesus, we pray. In your name, amen. So this weekend, uh, just the last couple of days, a good group of students, as Mike said earlier, and some adults went to Grace Church in Eden Prairie for an apologetics conference. And uh, one of the students who came to the conference, this was his first time uh, at that type of event, and so the first night I asked him, hey, what do you think? He said, it's interesting. He said, there's a lot of topics that people tend to dance around and kind of avoid, but these guys aren't avoiding any of that. Now, we live in a world, don't we, where certain topics are off limits, and uh, even if we end up having conversations about them, um, it's certainly not okay for my convictions to determine your convictions because we live in a you-do-you kind of world. What's true for me doesn't necessarily have to be true for you. What's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. We live in kind of uh, that kind of world, don't we? Jesus doesn't have those categories, though. Uh, Nothing's off limits for him. No matter how hard it might be to hear or to accept, Jesus loves us enough to not ignore the things that we really need to hear. So today, Jesus is going to talk about the love of money and hell. This is a sobering text, and uh, Jesus makes very clear there are eternal realities at stake, heaven and hell, eternal joy and comfort, or eternal anguish and torment. And what's at the heart of all of this is the insidious danger of self-righteous religious hypocrisy. So all of us who have been in church for any amount of time are susceptible to this kind of danger. You know, we, we know the right words to say. We know how to put a face on. We know how to play the role. We can even use religious jargon to excuse our lack of love and generosity, can't we? Last week, uh, in our study of Luke's gospel, we saw that everything that has been entrusted to us, be it our finances or what have you, has been entrusted to us for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Last week, Jesus says that uh, we are to be shrewd disciples who use the resources he's given us to make friends with those that will last eternity. 
supposed to be on mission and use everything that is entrusted to us for the sake of the gospel. Today, Jesus is searching our hearts and putting everything, all of our ambitions in perspective so that we might flee to him and live with eternity in view. He wants to show us first our desperate need for him so that we might genuinely receive his mercy and be transformed to live on his mission before it's too late. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he says, he says this. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot to the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, and the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on the earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. In a sense, Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. In this passage of scripture, Jesus is forcing us not only to think about heaven and the the glories that await the redeemed, but also to think upon hell and all the anguish that awaits those who have not trusted in Jesus. This is a searching and sobering passage. And it's meant to wake us up before it's too late. You know, when we talk about warnings, we often use the illustration, which I think is a good one. It's like flashing lights on the dashboard of a car, you know, check engine or the low fuel. Uh, This isn't a flashing light on the dashboard. This is a passage of scripture for those who have ignored the check engine light. And now your car is smoking and it's on the verge of irreplaceable damage. This is a sobering text an urgent text, and Jesus wants to wake us up before it's too late. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we really living for and how are we justifying it? When we breathe our last, will what we gave our lives to make sense? Will it be worth it in the end? What becomes clear in this passage is that This is what Jesus is doing. How we relate to him will have a direct effect, a direct impact on how we relate to others. If we've received mercy, we will give mercy. On the contrary, if we haven't received mercy from Jesus, we will live our lives for our own little kingdoms. So Jesus is going to give us some hard truths today to help us examine ourselves, and he does this in two moves. First, he gives us a searching pronouncement, and second, he tells a sobering Story. So if you're taking notes, number one, a searching pronouncement. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What, exalt, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Just to back up again, uh, like I said just a moment ago, last week we heard Jesus teach on money and and the need to use money evangelistically for the good of others and not just ourselves, right? Verse 13 of last week's uh, passage, Jesus ended by saying, you cannot serve two masters. 
You either will love one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and money. You simply cannot do it. And now the Pharisees are sitting in on this conversation. They're, they're, they're overhearing what Jesus is saying, and they don't like this. And as Luke tells us plainly, they don't like this because they loved money. Jesus was poking at their idols, the things that they hoped in, the things they hoped for. And now, when someone starts poking at our idols, we have this tendency to dip and dodge, don't we? We have this amazing ability to maneuver and manipulate our way out of conviction. One of the ways that we do it is start mocking people. We start ridiculing them. We love to make other people feel small so that we can feel justified in our sin. The reality is is that we protect what we truly love. We protect what rules our hearts. We protect what we think we truly need. Now we have to ask ourselves, um, do, do, are, are we lovers of money? It's easy to point the finger at the Pharisees. <laughs> what rules our hearts? Where do we find our sense of security? Where do we find our sense of safety? Where do we find our sense of meaning? Do we look to money to give us all those things? Philip Reichen, in his commentary, he has some searching comments about this. He says this, He says, when we're anxious about our finances, not trusting God to provide for our needs today and tomorrow, we're in love with money and its power to make us feel secure. When we find our thoughts returning again and again to something we're hoping to buy, we're in love with money and its power to get us what we think we want. When we make employment decisions that are spiritually unwise for ourselves and our families, we're in love with money and our plans for getting more of it. When we spend more time complaining about what we do not have than rejoicing in what we do have, we're in love with money and depend on our possessions rather than on God to give us contentment and joy. When it seems difficult or even impossible to give up something we want in order to give a sacrificial gift to the Christian work in the gospel, we are more in love with money than we are with the gospel and what it can do to bring change to the world. And before we move on, just ask yourself, what's happening in my mind and heart right now? Are we excusing our lack of generosity and our love of money? Or are we able to get honest? To see it for what it really is. Do we see our need for mercy? Or are we seeking to manipulate and maneuver our way out of conviction? You see, if we slow down long enough and actually think about these things, we find out we're a lot more like the Pharisees than we like to admit, aren't we? Now the question we have to ask ourselves is, where do we, where do we run with the things that rule our heart? Look with me here at verses 16 through 18. Jesus continues, he says, The law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced uh, from her husband commits adultery. Here is what Jesus is saying. He's saying self-righteousness is insidious because we can even trick ourselves. It's, it's no secret that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were, were, they were the experts of the law. They knew the, the law and the prophets. That is the entirety of the Old Testament from cover to cover, front to back. If you started to challenge the Pharisees, they could easily point out chapter and verse to justify their actions. They knew the scriptures. The problem was they didn't know how to read the scriptures. They didn't know what the scriptures were supposed to do. They read the law and rather than letting the law read them, (laughs) they used it to start comparing themselves to other people. In in a couple chapters, in Luke 18, Jesus is going to tell this parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee. They both go into the temple to pray. And you you hear the Pharisee pray, and you just hear the self-righteousness in him, right? he, He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You just hear him. He's, he's reading the law. He knows the law and he struts on into the presence of God and says, thank you, I'm not like those people. It's a scary thing when we read the Bible and we start thinking about all the other people who don't measure up but we're blind to the fact that we're in desperate need of grace. Friends, if you're more concerned with the sin of others and more preoccupied with your own righteous deed, you're in grave danger. The law and the prophets, that As Jesus says, they are God's word to us, and yet they had a specific purpose. They were meant to show us our need of a Savior and and point us to the one who is to come to make all things right. It's been said that the law is like a GPS. Now, a GPS, it can tell you where you are and where you're supposed to be. A GPS can tell you where you're off track, and a GPS can tell you how to get there. But what a GPS cannot do is get you one inch from point A to point B. You need something with a little gas in the engine to get you there. You need something that will actually have power to get you there. Friends, the law was never meant to get you from A to B. The law was never meant to get you from a place of unrighteousness to holiness. We need the gospel for that. We need something with a little power in that. We need King Jesus to come in to give us that. We cannot move one inch towards righteousness by obeying the Ten Commandments. We need divine grace to rescue us. Verse 16, Jesus says that the era of the law and the prophets was until John the Baptist. But now, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached. The Savior has come. The King has come. The day that we've been waiting for, the King Jesus would come to make all things right. The day is now. The King is here. Peace is here. Forgiveness is available. Righteousness can be given to you. And it says that everyone is forcing their way into it. In other words, those who knew their need of a Savior were running to Jesus. 
We got the sinners and the tax collectors from Luke 15, verse 1. We got the disabled and the, the blind and the crippled. We have the unclean. There's this story in Luke's gospel that I absolutely love. It's this story of a group of friends that, that break through the roof of a house just to get to Jesus. You see what happens. The people who know their need for Jesus flee to Jesus. They don't take a second thought at it. They'll do anything they possibly can to get to Jesus. They're zealous for the kingdom of God. They're forcing their way into the kingdom of God. Friends, do we have that zeal for King Jesus. One of the ways that we can tell if we're functioning in self-righteousness if we've lost our zeal for Jesus. If we woke up this morning and we actually think, I think I can do this. I think I got this. Friends, if we can look back on our lives, our time with Jesus, and we see that we are more zealous for the kingdom the day that we were converted than we are today, we're headed in the wrong direction. You see, self-righteousness is so insidious. I mean, not only are the morally upright in danger of it, but good night, I'm like the most self-righteous person towards self-righteous people. Right? I look down my nose at people who look down their noses. God help us. You see, the gospel should level all of us and put us on level playing ground. All of us are desperate and in daily need of the saving grace of the gospel. The question is, do we actually recognize that? Do we actually realize that? Now in verse 18, this is kind of odd, Jesus brings up divorce and remarriage. And this seems like so out of place, doesn't it? Like, what's he doing here? And um, my little escape clause (laughs) is this isn't a sermon about marriage, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about that. What I will say is Jesus has more to say about divorce and remarriage than he says here. So this isn't all that he has to say about the topic. The Apostle Paul also has more to say about this. What Jesus is doing here is he's not teaching a robust view of marriage and divorce and remarriage. What he's doing is he's pointing out the Pharisees' hypocrisy. He's pointing out how they've taken the word of God and rather than letting it read them, they're misreading it to justify themselves. Because back in the day uh, of Jesus' time, much like our own, um, marriage was held really cheap. And even leading Jewish rabbis, you know, who were experts of the experts of the law, they would say things like, a man can divorce his wife for any reason he wants, even if he doesn't like her cooking. That's justifiable, and God's okay with that. Jesus is bringing up marriage and divorce and remarriage by saying, do you really think that this is God's heart for a covenant relationship that displays his deepest heart towards his covenant with his people? Do you really think covenants are that cheap? He's putting his finger on the way that the Pharisees we're reading their desires into the scriptures rather than letting the scriptures reorient their desires. So friends, again, we're in danger. Big danger. If when we come to something in the scriptures, it causes us to pause and we explain it away. The law and the prophets are meant to drive us to our need of a savior, not to explain it away. The good news of the gospel is Jesus is just that savior. So we don't have to run. Jesus is giving us a searching pronouncement 
He's showing us all clearly that we need mercy from him. And he's going to lovingly put his finger on our idols, the things that rule our hearts. And the question that we must ask is, will we flee to Jesus for mercy or will we continue to justify ourselves so that we can hold on to the things that we love? Now, Jesus is going to move into uh, a story to illustrate the danger that we're in if Jesus doesn't rule our hearts. And what Jesus is doing with this story is he's showing us uh, that what or who rules our hearts is revealed in how we relate to others. Now, don't hear me saying that how we relate to others uh, indicates how we relate to Jesus. It's the other way around. How we relate to Jesus will show itself in how we relate to others. Um, so, if you're taking notes, this is point number two, a sobering story. Let's look at verse uh, 19 to 21. This story is supposed to snap us out of our delusions of seeking the American dream. This is supposed to snap us out of pursuing the good life no matter the cost. And in this story, we're going to see two people and two places. And uh, first, let's, let's walk through this. Verses 19 through 21, we're going to see two people. Verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we have two people who couldn't be more different than they are. First, we see the rich man. As one commentator said it, this man is described in excessive, even outrageous terms. This is a rich man. This rich man, he has all the nicest things. All the nicest clothes. He, he never wears the same outfit twice. He's, he's clothed in purple, and, and purple is only uh, wore by the richest of the rich. It, it was typically only royalty that wore it. In fact, the way that you got purple dye back in the day was you had to find these rare snails, I hear, and crush up their shells to, to extract the purple color out of it and then dye the linen. So only the wealthiest of the wealthiest could wear purple. And this man was strutting around in purple all day, every day, top to bottom. This man had all of the stuff. And not only were his uh, you know, shirt and pants nice, the word fine linen in there, it's talking about his underwear too. This man, like, had all the nice stuff. <laughs> Baller. <laughs> he feasted like a king. Not only did he dress like a king, he feasted like a king. He ate sumptuously every day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He had feast upon feast upon feast. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I'm all for a good meal. I love celebrating with a feast. And to be honest with you, um, God created steak because he's a good God. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have to create it, but he did because he loves us. <laughs> but this man was over the top, right? Every day, every meal was top shelf. The wine never stopped flowing. He got what he wanted, when he wanted it, how he wanted it. Notice also that he had a, he had a gate at his house. 
He had a big house on property. He was the king of his own castle. He had privacy. Those who he wanted to come in could come in. Those who he wanted to keep out, he could keep out. This man had land. He didn't have neighbors. He didn't have to worry about the nonsense of the city. He had his own gate around his own little castle and his own little kingdom. Interestingly, later on in the story, we see him call Abraham father, indicating he was a religious man. He was a Jewish guy. Sadly, he probably thought that God had blessed his life because of all the material goods that he had. It's uh, like the false gospel that says just believe in God and you'll have everything you want. Nothing could be more deceiving. This man had everything the world had to offer. This was the influencer that the world admires. This was the celebrity that the world envies. But his heart was clearly far from God. An old friend of mine, um, his name was Zion. He and his dad were like these gnarly skater evangelist dudes, right? They love skateboarding. There's some, I think, that, I don't know where they were from, but I just assume they're from California because who skates is not from there, right? No. Um, <laughs> these friends of mine, though, but, but they, uh, they were skateboarding, so they could, like, be friends with people that most people wouldn't ever be friends with. And we lived in South Florida, and uh, Little Wayne, at a house in Miami, and there was this period of time when he, like, started skateboarding, apparently. So he built his own little skate park in his own house. And I remember as a kid watching MTV Cribs. You guys remember that show, any of you guys? <laughs> I remember watching an episode with Lil Wayne. It was absolutely ridiculous. You walk in, and on the, on the floor, there's this big money sign of, like, felt or whatever on the floor with his tile all around it. And then you walk into the living room and you got this jacuzzi right in the middle of your living room. And then right next door, there's this massive pool that he probably never used. And you go into the kitchen and it's just ridiculous. It's just over the top. Well, apparently he built a skate park in there as well because why not, right? I get what I want. I have what I want. I do what I want. Why not? And so my buddy, actually, Zion, he gets invited to a personal skate session with Lil Wayne. Um... He takes him up on the offer. So they're skating in his personal park or whatever, and eventually my friend tries telling Lil Wayne about Jesus, um, to which he responds, oh, yeah, no, I'm, me and Jesus, we're cool. I'm a Christian. My mom's brought me to church growing up. If you know anything about Lil Wayne, you know that he lives for one person and one person only, and it certainly isn't Jesus. Self-deception runs so deep. When we have the world's goods and know a few religious traditions, we can easily fool ourselves that we're okay with Jesus when in reality we're far from God. When we have genuinely seen our need for Jesus and received his mercy, we'll stop living for ourselves and seek to extend mercy to those around us. And this was not the case with Little Wayne and it's not the case with this man in Luke 16. There was a poor man at this man's gate. He never helped him out. He never took care of him. In fact, the unclean dogs took better care of him than the rich man did. Now the point 
isn't that being rich is inherently bad, but riches do make an awful master, don't they? Money and materials can easily counterfeit the true hope of the gospel and trick us from knowing our need of a savior. So our goal can't be to get rich. Our goal needs to be to know and love Jesus and live on his mission no matter what he entrusts to us, whether we have lots of money or none at all. Our mission stays the same. Our ambition stays the same, to know, love, and follow Christ all the days of our lives. Now the poor man couldn't be any more different from the rich man. If the rich man had all the world's goods, this poor man had none of the world's goods. He was immobile. He had to be carried around. He was ill. He was hungry. He couldn't care for himself, and no one else would either. And yet, this poor man had something the rich man doesn't. He has a name. His name is Lazarus, which means God is my helper. Now, if we were to look at this man's life, it would be easy to think that God had abandoned him. Circumstances can be so deceiving, can't they? Listen, the circumstances that we go through don't determine the love that God has for us. Some of us are going through unspeakable suffering right now. And we're asking, where's God? Why isn't he helping me? Lazarus knew those wrestles well. Jesus himself knows what it's like on the cross you remember what he cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me listen the hardships that we go through don't determine the love that god has for us and as we'll see looking to god and not ourselves as our helper will be so worth it in the end so we have two people in this story who couldn't be more different from one another however Despite all their differences, they both have something in common. Verse 22, they both die. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we have two people in this story, and now we see two places. We all know this. We all have an appointment with death. And when we die, it will be revealed where our hope truly lies. Read with me verse 22. It says, A poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. His whole life, he probably wrestled with the question, How in the world is God my helper? But the moment he breathed his last, all doubts were undone. He who suffered his whole life was immediately comforted by divine messengers. He who was begging for scraps from the table found himself a seat at the eternal feast in the kingdom of God next to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He who was covered in sores is now covered in perfection. He who was cared for by the, uh, the dogs was immediately cared for by his Savior. Listen, in the twinkling of an eye, all his sorrows were undone. All his suffering was no more. All that was sad was becoming untrue. Everything was worth it in the end for this poor man who hoped in God. Christian, what you're suffering right now is not the end of the story. This light momentary affliction is 
preparing a weight of glory beyond all comparison. Hold on. Help is on the way. Don't lose hope. It will be worth it in the end. But not so for the rich man who lived only for himself and showed no mercy, he finds himself in hell. His lavish life is suddenly undone. It's over. All the joy is gone. He finds himself in torment. And Jesus is holding up before us a graphic picture and causing us to look at the realities of hell. Read verse 22 and 30 th- uh, through 31 with me. It says, a rich man also died and was buried, and being in Hades, and, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross over from uh, from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, They do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, as uncomfortable and unpopular as it is, we need to slow down and consider what Jesus is teaching us about hell. We see five realities about hell in this section. I'm just going to walk through them slowly. So, number one, we see that hell is a real place of torment and anguish. Now, this is hard because a lot of us, most of us, know people who have died apart from Jesus. This should cause us to weep, tremble. But we can't ignore it or explain it away simply because it makes us uncomfortable. What we can recognize is that Jesus loves us enough to tell us what's actually at stake. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus speaks of hell as the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels, and that those who reject him also go there. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus describes hell as the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In our text, in Luke 16, he says it is a place of torment and anguish. And in the book of Revelation, we're told that those who reject Jesus will drink the wine of God's wrath, pour full strength into the cup of his anger, and be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's Revelation 14:10. Friends, there have always been people throughout the entirety of the history who have tried to explain away the reality of hell. But we simply can't take Jesus seriously and deny the reality of hell. And one of the saddest lies that so many of us, myself included, before as a believer, believe 
is that heaven's actually going to be pretty boring and hell's going to be the place where all the rebels go and party forever with all our restrictions finally let loose. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. There will not be one drop of joy in hell. All the joys we've experienced on earth will be a distant memory. We will never experience a belly laugh again. No song will captivate our imagination. Every friendship you've ever experienced will be turned into rivals and regrets. Every beautiful starry night will only be darkness and emptiness. Every ounce of joy you've ever experienced will forever be forgotten. There will be no peace, no love, no companionship, only strife, only hatred, only rivalry, only gut-wrenching loneliness. Friends, hell is a real place of torment and anguish. Number two, what we see is hell is inescapable and eternal. Look at verse 26. It says, and besides all this, besides us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There are no second chances once we die. There's no changing of our minds. There is no opportunity to be forgiven by Jesus once we breathe our last. It will never end. It will be like a nightmare that you never wake up from. A sad song that doesn't end. A painful moment with no hope of relief. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, never ending. Endless misery with no hope whatsoever of escape. Number three, in hell we become the worst version of ourselves. Look at verse 24. It says, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Notice how the rich man still thinks he can boss Lazarus around. What arrogance. Notice how full of selfishness he is. He is perfectly willing for Lazarus to lose his eternal joy so that he can have one moment of relief. Friends, I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I am just acutely aware of how hopelessly sinful I am. And if it wasn't for the moment-by-moment restraining grace of God, I'd be unleashed into all sorts of ungodliness. If it wasn't for the restraining grace of God, all of our anger would end in murder. If it wasn't for the restraining grace of God, all of our lust would end in rape and adultery. All the seeds of our sin would sprout into full blossom and the world would be full of utter chaos continually. There would be no hint of peace. In hell, all the restraining grace of God will be removed and will be found far worse than we could ever imagine. Consumed by rage 24-7, consumed by greed and selfishness, consumed by hatred, there will be no check in your spirit that says, hmm, maybe I should think twice about that. We'll be living for the lust of our flesh, constantly devouring and being devoured. There's this storyline in the scripture that you see right from the beginning that God created humanity to rule over the beasts of the earth. 
to have dominion. When sin enters the world, what happens is we actually become like the beasts. The more we're consumed by sin, the more beastly we become, friends, in hell, there, there will be no image of God remaining. We will be unleashed into beastliness. Only devouring, only deceiving, only destroying. Number four, hell will be full of regret. Look with me at verse 27 through 28. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. I have five brothers, so that Lazarus may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Those in hell will realize all the relationships that they wasted. They'll suddenly realize how trivial our companionships were in light of eternity. All the opportunities that we punt on, it's amazing to think about. Sad. The only hint of compassion that the rich man has in hell only adds to his sense of regret and remorse. He sees his family apart from Christ. He realizes the time he wasted. He longs for them to know Christ so that they too don't have to suffer and there's nothing he can do about it. He'll be full of nothing but regret in hell. Friends, hell is a real place full of anguish and torment. Hell is eternal and inescapable. Hell will reveal the worst in us and hell will be full of regret. And number five, hell is avoidable. Look at verse 31. He says, He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Or to say it another way, if they hear Moses and the prophets, we will be convinced and escape the wrath to come. By the way, what did Jesus do when he actually rose from the dead and appeared to people? I love this. In Luke 24, uh, we see Jesus go and meet some of his disciples. And what does he do? He has a Bible study with them. <laughs> Luke 24, 27 says this. Notice the repeated words here. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, sound familiar? <laughs> he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Friends, the answer to our plight is found in the good news of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is not that we have to rescue ourselves out of hell, that we somehow have to polish ourselves up in order to get in with Jesus, that we somehow have to be righteous enough to Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came into the world on a rescue mission for sinners and sufferers like us. The problem is not with the good news of the gospel. The problem is that we don't realize we need the gospel. One of my favorite stories in all the scripture, we'll get there in probably three years, Luke 23. <laughs> Jesus is hanging on the cross. And next to Jesus, we have two criminals who are crucified with him. And one of the criminals is mocking Jesus. He's railing at Jesus. It says he's doing the exact same thing that the Pharisees were doing here. He says, if you are the Christ, save yourself and save us too. Hardened in his sin, blind to what's happening right in front of him, cannot see the beauty and the glory of the moment in front of him. He can only mock. But then in a moment of divine grace, something happens in the other criminal. 
The other criminal who's only lived his life in ungodliness. The other criminal who has only lived his life seeking what he can get. The, the other criminal who has only ran far from God. In a moment of divine grace, the scales come off. The heart is soft and God pierces in. His spirit floods him and he looks over at this other man and says, Are you crazy? Do you not even fear God? In a moment of divine grace, he realizes we deserve this condemnation. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And then he looks to Jesus in his helpless state. It's Jesus. Would you just remember me when you enter into your kingdom? Jesus, bleeding on the cross, paying for his sins in that moment, looks at him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, the good news of the gospel is not that we got to clean ourselves up and get our act together. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus paid for all of our sin and unrighteousness, that we might flee to him. The question we have to ask is, do we see our need of him? If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I plead with you, come to him. Let the scales fall off your eyes. Stop believing the delusions that you're okay when you're running far from God. He will have you. He will have you. You do not have to go to hell. You do not have to spend eternity in torment. Not only do you escape the wrath to come, but Jesus is the one you were meant to have. No one will satisfy you like he'll satisfy you. No peace will ever come from anyone other than the Prince of Peace. He is the one your heart longs for, and he is offering you free grace right now. Would you come to him? Would you stop looking? Would you stop running? Would you stop searching? Would you get honest with yourself for one second and realize all my searching has left me empty still? I have not found what I'm looking for. I promise you, you come to Jesus, your life might, like it, might, might not get easier, but you'll have peace and satisfaction now and forevermore. So those of us who are followers of Jesus, what do we do with this? Um, and there's a lot that we could say. Um, <laughs> we should be thankful. <laughs> we should be grateful. Uh, I think at the core of all of this, though, when we think about the realities of hell and the scandalous, amazing grace of the gospel, this should fuel compassionate, urgent evangelism. People need to know this good news. Friends, we have good news to tell the world. The gospel is good news that we get to share with our neighbors and the nations. Now, when we think of evangelism, I'm sure a lot of us have really bad pictures that come into our mind of the angry street preachers and the annoying people, you know, running around the street or whatever. And, you know, if, if that's your thing, I'd rather you preach the gospel than not. However, um, <laughs> sorry, I wonder how, what I think about that right now. Um, here's what I would say, though. When we're seeking to live on mission and sharing the gospel with those who don't know Jesus, what we really want is to develop friendships with folks long enough and stay in their lives long enough so that when their idols fail them, we can offer them the hope that they've been looking for all along. Um, and so cute little rhyme for you guys to remember to think through evangelism think through location vocation and recreation where has God located you where do you live start praying for your neighbors get creative with how you can reach those in your neighborhood God has placed us where he has so that we might be a light to our neighbors
Now I love, you know, um, I used this illustration in the first service, uh, and I didn't ask them for permission, but they didn't tell me not to on the second. So the Zapatas, I love this. Uh, Pastor Gabe and his family on Halloween, and their desire to get to know their neighbors and to be on mission, they did something so clever, right? They, they had a fire out in the front of their house, and they were roasting uh, hot dogs, and they told all their neighbors, hey, come on over and have a meal before you guys go to Halloween. Just wanting to get into the neighborhood, wanting to get to know people, wanting to serve so that we can build relationships. Get creative with knowing your neighbors. Vocation. Where do you spend your, your work days? If you go to an office, God has placed you there with those people for the majority of your time on earth. Now, I'm not saying being that annoying coworker who's, you know, Jesus juking everyone all the time, but what I am saying is don't hide the fact that you're a follower of Jesus and the gospel makes a difference in your life. Someone says, hey, how was your weekend? It was great. Well, it would have been better if that dumb preacher didn't, you know, talk so long. But, you know, uh, you know, like, hey, I went to church, and this, this verse actually really helped me. We can get really practical with that. Just start putting seeds in people's hearts. And then your recreation. Where do you play? Where do you have fun? What sports teams are you on? What hobbies do you have? We can enjoy all the things that we enjoy purposefully and on mission because in light of eternity, man, that only makes sense, doesn't it? Um... So Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees not to beat them over the head, but because he's holding out real hope and love to them. And he's inviting us into this story. There are many people that Jesus purchased on the cross who don't yet know it. And we have the joy of telling them the good news of a God who saves. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move into uh, taking the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. We do praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your rescue. Thank you, Jesus, that you came into the world to save sinners. I pray, oh God, that you would now search our hearts as we reflect about the costly grace that you displayed towards us in the breaking of your body and the spilling of your blood. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's take a few moments. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.